Space Shuttle, this is Flight Safety. This podcast may contain adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. Please keep your hands and arms inside the vehicle while in motion. You are clear for launch. The following paragraphs are from Chapter 1 of a fanfiction titled Bloodlust, Bureaucracy, and Something in Between by today's guest fanfiction writer, Lady Voldy. The false moon loomed above, and Hermione leafed through the parchments on her desk, completely alone. McLagan was long gone. His notes were sparse and his penmanship was abysmal, but the more she read, the more sympathy she felt for him. Horrific testimonies were detailed in these records, testimonies she would soon be hearing herself. It was no surprise that some of her new clients were murderers, or that others fed off their pets. They were mild cases. Others had tried to attack their caseworkers, their lovers, and even their children. Then there were the inevitable no-shows, those who decided not to live under the rule of others, and instead returned to what nature intended. McLagan had been dealing with some smarmy characters. Hermione missed the house elves. Her tired eyes slid to the clock above her desk, then to her watch, as though the hour may be different. The timepieces, large and small, ticked in unison. It was nearly five in the morning. The sooner she got used to the night shift, the better. It would make Monday less of a shock. She grabbed the next folder off the top of the pile, grimacing after reading what the vampire had done to a hag in Belfast. Apparently, he was over 900 years old and didn't speak any English. Those meetings would be interesting. Without pause, she stacked the pile to her right and seized another from her left. She flipped it open. At a glance, it was a rather scant case, with no previous session on record. They were either newly infected or very secretive. Curious, her gaze traveled to the top of the registration page, wondering just who this mysterious vampire could be. She let out a gasp. There, in his heavy-handed signature, was a name she was not prepared to see. It was the same thick lettering she recalled from nasty notes and prefect meetings, the very one that was carved in the bathroom stall near the room of requirement. The way the vowels looked the same, and the way the looping consonants had no loops at all, there was no mistaking this handwriting. Draco Malfoy, infamous blood purist, was a vampire. To the north, south, east, and west four corners of the world, greetings from the wild arid desert of the American Southwest. I'm your host, Chaos Blue, and this is the Fanfic Maverick Podcast. Today's guest fanfiction writer is Lady Voldy. She's been a member of AO3 since 2020 and has 77 fanfiction works currently posted for Harry Potter, Wednesday, and Star Wars. While fandom is the hobby that takes up most of her time, Lady Voldy also likes to dabble in other things like bone taxidermy and fishing. She works in the financial tech industry and is especially interested in personal finance. Lady Voldy, welcome to FFM. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. How are you doing? It's all good. It's always all good when it's the weekend, right? Am oh, I the only God, one? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you. It's been a long week. It has, and it's finally over, and we can take a little break here and just chat about fan fiction, which, incidentally, is my favorite thing to talk about. (laughs) Me too. Perfect. (laughs) What a coincidence, right? So um, let's start out here with your history with fan fiction. I want to know how you discovered fan fiction for the very first time, and I also kind of am curious to know if you still remember the first fic that you ever read. Yeah, so I would have been 9, 10, 11, somewhere in there. I I can't recall the specific title, but it was back in the day when MuggleNet let you like buy books in exchange for their digital currency, which were these little galleons. I do remember there was something about time turners, but I can't recall much beyond that. I think it was still a whip, but I can't remember if it was Jen or Remini. I was a Remini shipper at the time. But I don't remember Muggle that being very good at marking ships back in the day um, that many years ago. Maybe they're a little better in their archive now. But back then, it was just kind of like, here's a summary. Have at her. <laughs> that sounds like typical 90s fashion fan fiction because yes. that's how it was. So, oh, that's so, so cool. So did you say MuggleNet? Yeah. Back in the day, MuggleNet let you like buy fan fictions with galleons. You would like pay whatever you had in Galleons, and you would get a a quote-unquote book in exchange. But it was just fan fiction. How did you get these Galleons? I couldn't tell you. I think there were like little games and things, but it was so long ago. I... It's a very vague core memory. (laughs) That is so weird. So they were profiting off of people's fan fictions in a way? Not really, because it was like an in-game currency, but I can see why... They changed that model in later years. Yeah, because even if they're not technically making money with these, I mean, you know, obviously galleons are in-game currency, right? But they're still kind of using it to entice you to play their games, right? In exchange for fan fiction that they didn't write. What? I did not know this about MuggleNet. How how did nobody ever tell me this? Yeah, what? I mean, I'm, I'm 90% sure that it was MuggleNet. It was so long ago. I'm almost 30 now. So when I was nine, it was a long time ago at this point. But that said, yeah, I very, very vividly remember having to exchange little galleons for these books. And you would then get the books and you could read them because I was really upset when I couldn't read a fic because I didn't have the galleons. Yeah, it was a whole thing. (laughs) Oh, my God. You have to go out there and start grinding. That's what we call it in gamer language, grinding, you know, in the games to get your galleon so you could read the fan fiction. Yes, it was like oh nine-year-old God. Neopet style all over again, oh but my God. for fan fiction. What? What? No, when you got this fan fiction, I'm so curious about this concept. I've never heard of this before. When you got your book, right, you exchanged your galleons for the book. Did you know at that age that these were fan fictions just written by normal fans fellow fans yeah so i actually started writing my own fan fictions when i was like nine or so and and putting them on there so i I was keenly aware that it was yeah other people okay okay so since you were introduced to this concept of fan fiction so young was this like amazing to you when you discovered it for the first time or was it just because you were so young it was just kind of like oh yeah yeah i can accept that that's cool 
that's the way the world is and all that. Yeah, I love the concept. So I've actually been writing since I was like six years old. When we first started getting those vocab words, we had to use in sentences. I would make little stories out of them. So it's always just kind of been a, a natural instinct for me to write things. So to find this avenue for me to share my writing at such a young age, which we all know that it would have been garbage at that point in time. It was not good. <laughs> I was nine. But everybody was writing fan fiction when they were nine on these websites. That was kind of the game. And that's how we've all gotten a little better along the way, right? Of course. Of course. You got to start somewhere, right? I think that's the beautiful thing about fan fiction is uh, you are going to find a stratified pool of capability, right, with writing. Because, you know, you got people starting at all different kinds of levels and that's okay, right? That's okay. And it's necessary to go through that process to get better and to experiment and just to express yourself at any age. I think it's fantastic. So like, I'm all good about people writing at whatever age and level they find themselves at. So that's perfect. Um, so it sounds like you've been reading fan fiction for a long time. I'm wondering in all this time reading fan fiction, there has to be at least one fan fiction that you discovered along the way that must have had a huge impact on you either as a writer or as a person like reading the story. So I'm wondering if you have a fan fiction like that that impacted you to that level. And if so, do you remember what the fic was and what that impact looked like for you? Absolutely. So so three come to mind, but for a little background, I came back to fandom in my mid-20s after I had sort of a mystery chronic illness causing like brain fog and cognitive decline. I couldn't retain things that I was reading anymore. And I couldn't write even though I'd been a professional ghostwriter in previous years. So because my skills had really slipped with this change, I started relearning how to read with Harry Potter. And so it was one of the series that really helped me hone in on my reading skills as a child. And then I get into this like nostalgic rabbit hole, right? Which leads to a Germani rabbit hole. And then I read loads of fics. I can't remember which was like the first one when I came back. I just know that I I dove right in. I was reading a ton. I was up till 4 a.m. just reading constantly. But the one that really stuck out at the time was Queen of Swords by Ravenslight. It was just so superbly written and incredibly creative. And it had this like palpable darkness that was just accompanied by this like strong sense of hope and empowerment. It just like radiated feminine rage. I really can't recommend it enough. But there's like two other ones that also I, I really love. I don't think that they stand out quite as much because that was so early in my reintroduction to fan fiction that I, I think it just holds a close place in my heart. But I have two other fics I'm really inspired by, but they're not Germani. They're both Tomini, actually. One is Nightmare by Provocative Envy. It's like a lot of typical Time Turner, Tom Riddle trope, but it's done really artfully. It's a fantastic read. So if you're like getting into Tamini for the first time, it's kind of the one I recommend. And my all-time fave, Madam Umbridge, Home for Wayward Girls. It's Tamini, it's Germini, not Triad, but it's a Muggle AU, which I'm usually not super into, but it's just this incredible Victorian horror. It's of the highest caliber. It's like 750K, but it's worth every moment of it. You never feel bored. The characters are interesting. They're motivated. And even though like it's really long, it's impressively intentional and vivid. It's definitely dark, but there's enough comic relief to make it like an enjoyable read for people that maybe don't dabble in dark fiction quite as much as like maybe I do. 
I really can't say enough good things about it, but it's it's probably my my highest tier of fanfic. I love hearing when people are like, yes, I have been impacted in some way, right, by these stories that I read. I feel like the ones that impact you never really leave you. Like you'll think about them for years and years and they just kind of live inside of you somewhere, you know, and you go back to them every now and then and think about them like, wow, if you had to put into words like why those fan fictions impacted you the way that they did, what would you say? So I think for Queen of Swords, I was like going through kind of this difficult time period where my partner and I had kind of separated and I was living on my own during COVID for the first time in my adult life and like struggling with this medical condition. And it's just like, it's this take on Hermione going through like some really, I don't want to give us too much away, but she just goes through a lot of dark and difficult times, but she comes out like more empowered than ever. And, you know, she comes out better for it. And I, I think that really spoke to me. Plus the writing is just superb. Um, the author is actually an editor now and as she should be because she's fantastic she like does editing services for original fiction and i'd I'd recommend her to anybody wow so it sounds like you really related to hermione in the story on such a personal level because of what was going on in your real life at the time yeah i think so and i think it was just so creative like i read all these different stories and a lot of them followed the same tropes and concepts but It was the first time that I read something in fanfic again, like as an adult, that it felt like it was just a very creative take on Germione that I'd not read yet. I I was just really impressed by her creativity. God, I love, I love when people can do that and be so creative with their stories and give you something where you're like, damn, I've never seen anything quite like this in fanfiction spaces and it just stays with you. Do you feel like... Hermione's empowerment in the story, do you feel like that gave you hope for yourself? Yeah, I think so. Like for me, I didn't connect with fiction as much at that point in time because I'm very much like not an emotional reader. But now looking back, I think if I dig into my psychology a little bit more deeply, yes, probably. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm always fascinated by, I hear these stories from readers and writers a lot where they're like, yeah, I just happened to be going through this, you know, specific thing in my life. And I found this one fan fiction and man, like it was the exact story that I needed at the time. You know, it's so interesting how, how that happens, right? I always try to remind writers, especially writers that get depressed when they don't feel like their story gets enough attention when they first publish it on AO3. And they'll be kind of down about that. And I'll try to remind them, you know what? It might not be today and it might not be tomorrow, but someday someone who needs this story is going to find it when they need it. And it's going to mean everything to them. Just a reminder out there for all of the writers, don't lose hope. Somebody needs to read your story. I promise. I wanted to talk to you about your experiences running online Discord fandom communities, because that's something that you do. Um, in addition to being an amazing fan fiction writer, I'm excited to have someone who wants to talk about online Discord fandom communities because I didn't start going onto Discord until about maybe three years ago, and I'm not super into it still. I, I have a Discord. I go on there for short periods of, of time for specific reasons. 
But I'm fascinated that these communities exist. You know, I know that they could either be really, really awful, right, for people, or they can be really, really amazing places to connect with other like-minded people. So I was hoping that you could tell us about your experience running online Discord fandom communities. I want to know what you've learned so far doing this, what the greatest challenges are that you've faced in that capacity. And I'm also curious to know what your greatest joys have been as you've gone about that. Yeah, so Discord has been a cornerstone of my experience in fandom as an adult. I am in several servers, but the Harry Potter Fan Fiction Club was my first one and probably the one people know most. We have about 3,000 people, and it's it's basically just a book club on steroids for people that like fan fiction. We have house points and common rooms and events and all sorts of like different fun things. And one of the core pieces of our mission is to support all kinds of ships in the community. So we feature different ones every month. So everybody kind of feels welcome. I think what I really like about Discord, and maybe this is specific to our community, but it feels like everybody can kind of congregate in one space. Whereas in the old fandom days, it does feel like you were kind of like walled off based on whatever ship you were into. And then there weren't like many spaces for multi-shippers unless you were like really into the rare pair community. So I, I think the Discord's been really great for that. It brings a lot of people into spaces where maybe they wouldn't have been able to coexist before quite as easily. I mean, you do have like Reddit where there are like more all-encompassing spaces. But if we go on Reddit, you will see it's like kind of anti-Germini, kind of anti Tomini, like it's really not a safe space for people that want to dabble in some of these ships that aren't maybe as popular or as politically correct as other ones. Like, God forbid you suggest an age gap relationship in any of those like <laughs> subreddits. Yeah. Right, so, right. Best not to do that. <laughs> absolutely. So I like that like Discord has given us a space that we can all kind of like coexist. And make friends in maybe communities we wouldn't have before. We meet people that in fandom we never would have interacted with. And I think that, just, and again, maybe this is specific to our community, but I know it's also true of the Writers Guild. We have like a lot of people that come together in the Writers Guild that are really into Severus Snape, that make friends with these kind of hardcore canon shippers. And it's just people you would never see together otherwise. And a lot of these people meet up in real life. They continue with these friendships, even if they choose to like leave fandom for whatever reason. And I think that's really cool. Giving these people like a community to build these friendships has probably been like my biggest joy with running Discord servers. It's just a really cool phenomenon to watch these friendships grow. As for challenges, I think it really is at the core of having to hold people to the rules like Sometimes my own personal morals and ethics align with someone that's technically breaking a rule, and it sucks to have to follow my morals as an admin and moderate them because it, it can it can just kind of like be at odds with my own personal like politics or whatever, especially within like fandom ethics and things like that. So sometimes you have to be the bad guy when. If they knew like what you were really thinking, they wouldn't think you're the bad guy. It's just you have a responsibility to hold people to the rules, including yourself. You know, I, I can't break random rules that I've written. That would be 
absolutely preposterous. So there's a lot of things that like I can't say because I have to set a good example. And when you have to moderate your friends, doesn't always make you popular. You know, <laughs> I can imagine that that would be uncomfortable at times, right? Yeah. To have to step into the bad guy role. As I was thinking about this question this week and kind of pondering about what that must be like, you know, that was one of my biggest questions was, I love hearing you talk about how these are places where people can make connections with others that might be different than them and might have different perspectives and see the world in a different way and have completely different ideas and thoughts about different ships and, you know, plots and, and things like that, right? And that's amazing that there are places like the ones that you have here where people can do that in a respectful, productive way. But then I was thinking, that's so challenging to get people who might not all be like-minded to be in the same community and have it be a relatively peaceful place. In my mind, that feels like that would be this huge challenge. So I kind of want to dig into that just a little bit more. As far as solving that challenge goes, has it been mostly the rules that you guys have written for these communities that sort of solves that challenge or helps the community be a peaceful place? Has there been other ways that you've found that like help the Discord communities to function in a peaceful manner? I'm just so curious about that part. Yeah. So I think the rules kind of like help create the server culture, if you will. We have a rule that's like no ship shaming, no trope shaming, no character shaming, like you can say, I don't really like this because it doesn't work for me for X, Y, Z reason. But you can't say like, Snape sucks. I hate everybody that likes Snape. Or I keep using Snape as an example, but I think he's like one of the contentious ones. You know what I mean? That like you see people talking about a whole lot. Oh, he is. That's why I love him the most. Yeah, he's I my mean, guy. I'm, I'm a big fan. <laughs> I'm a big fan. Um, I'm also like a Tom Riddle stan. So I guess maybe I'm not the best gauge, but... Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it, it just like it allows people to have a, this space where they can freely talk about like different ideas and things and like respectfully disagree. But if we see people that are just stepping into like being straight up rude, that's when we would step in and say like, hey, you're breaking this rule. So I think that the rules have definitely sculpted the server culture and people that have been there long enough have really just accepted and settled into that and i think it's become part of their core fandom experience is like ship and let ship so yeah we just have these like different people that would never consider reading things outside of their ships we have like diehard germany shippers that are reading like tamini and and i think that that's maybe an easier jump but you'll see them get into like marauders stuff i mean we had people that all they read was next gen and now they're like marauders only. That's all they read. So it's it's really interesting to see how people like do some ship jumping once they are giving the resources to do so. I just I love to see it. Yeah. Well, and also once they're given this space where it's safe to do so, because it feels to me like a place like this that has these rules in place. So you have this culture of I don't know, peaceful non-judgment, you know, I feel like that gives people permission to explore, right? And to ask those questions and say, well, do I like this other thing I've never tried before? Maybe I do. And you just have that uh, that space to be able to do that. 
and it, it feels safe, I guess, is what I'm trying yeah. to say. And I, I love that. I absolutely love that because uh, I feel like that's such a magical thing to have in fandom, right? Not a lot of us have those experiences sometimes. But when we do, oh, they can be just so magical. And like you said, just the opportunity also to meet and connect with other people who see the world in different ways than we do. And still being able to see, you know, the humanity behind all of these ideas and to have that mutual respect for one another. That's so priceless in fandom. It really is. So I love what you guys are doing. That's so, so cool. <laughs> I love that. So hopefully these communities stay for a long time so people can enjoy them, right? Yeah, I mean, we have no plans of like shutting down or anything. I, I run a lot of different communities. I mean, I do have one that's like Germani specific. I have one that's like dark fic and dead dove specific so if you feel a little weird coming into like harry potter fan fiction club this giant group with lots of people seeing that like you're really into some kind of crazy dark fic stuff that i'm not gonna utter here we you know we have spaces for things like that too where you can be a degenerate in your own safe space <laughs> yeah there's lots no, of different yeah. places for different people that's the beauty of discord it's it's a little easier to use than Facebook groups because it has, it's like multi-channel and you can have these real-time chats about various things, but you can build friendships beyond just, oh, I like Harry Potter. You can talk about like your day and different things that maybe you wouldn't be able to maybe in a Facebook group just because you do have these other like channels where you can have those conversations. Yes, yes. I have noticed that uh, Discord seems to be way more interactive than Facebook would be. Facebook is limited in that sense, um, definitely. So I think that's so cool. That's so, so cool. I love that. Speaking of Germione, right? We have to talk about that because Germione is um, what we're talking about today in relation to the fan fiction that we're covering for you. I am almost positive that this is the first time we've covered Germione on the show. Oh, very cool. Yay. I know. I love being able to talk to people about different kinds of ships because to me, they're all fascinating. So from what I understand, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I understand, Germione seems pretty huge in the Harry Potter fandom. I, I feel like that's a pretty popular ship, right? And I'm kind of wondering why that is, just in the sense of like, why does Hermione and Drago work as a pairing? Because I always think that that's fascinating to hear about. I want to know all about what you find compelling about these two characters together. Yeah, so I think Hermione is just classic enemies to lovers. And I think that the draw of enemies to lovers in general is that these characters have to go through so many obstacles together like just to be together they have to go through a lot right and i think that's really enticing to readers as like a romantic gesture but also i think they're looking for something with conflict and meaningful plot all in all i mean i think the ship is popular for the same reasons that like Raylo or zutara or dark lena are popular in other like fandoms it's it's the tension right Oh, I never thought of that in a Raylo context. But now that you say that, absolutely. I never considered that before. Wow. Yeah, there are a lot of people that come from Raylo into Germany and vice versa. You'll find people that are like either dabble in both or started in one and ended up in the other. That's a pretty common phenomenon like in the, the community. And I mean, people just love a redemption arc. Again, for the same reason that people love Raylo, right? You love seeing... Ben Solo have this like big redemption arc that maybe 
a lot of people wouldn't expected to see in canon. And in Harry Potter, unfortunately, we didn't get a whole lot of that in canon. You know, Draco gets a little bit of a redemption arc, especially if you dive into like cursed child lore, but not the way that our boy Ben Solo did. So I think that's just the experience people are looking for. Oh, I love that. Ah, no, that's the perfect answer because I can absolutely see the conflict side. So that would be compelling for people. Just the challenge, right, of them getting together, the redemption arc, because I love a good redemption arc myself. Like, I'm all about that. So I can definitely see that. And I can especially see it, all of these points that you've just made, I can especially see it in context with the fan fiction that we're talking about for you today. I haven't read a whole lot of Dramini, so this was kind of like, oh, this is a cool experience. Like, I love getting exposed to lots of different things that I normally wouldn't. It's just fascinating and beautiful to me. First off, I have to point out that I loved the experience of writing your fan fiction so, so much. I told you before we started recording, your writing is so sharp. Thank you. So if you just disregard, like, everything else aside, plot, characters, anything else, if you were just to focus on like the style of writing and how sharp it is, my brain would just be in love with it just because of like how enjoyable it was to read the words that you put down on the page. Thank you so much. It, it was just amazing. So yes. And then the second thing, of course, is this is the first vampire fic that I've ever read. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, I don't read vampire stuff. So this was the first one. And I was absolutely just fascinated. I have questions for you, obviously, about that uh, as we get into this. But your fic is called Bloodlust, Bureaucracy, and Something in Between. And I want you to go ahead and tell us what the story is about and how you came up with the inspiration for this fic. Sure. So uh, Bloodlust, Bureaucracy, and Something in Between, which I'm going to call Bloodlust, and you should too, for the sake of not having to repeat that giant mouthful of the title. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah. So as you said, that like it is a vampire Draco soulmate AU. It's tropey. It's fun. It's maybe a little campy with some unique twists. All in all, it was never meant to be a super creative stroke of genius, as much as I wish I could say that it was. I've been rewriting this extremely technical dystopian AU that takes about a million spoons and due to some medical issues, the stress of rewriting it was like triggering my vertigo and it was putting a lot of pressure on me. So I just wanted something that was fun, easy to write, but a good exercise to keep my writing muscles moving. Cue bloodlust. Hermione is working in the department for the regulation and control of magical creatures. She's happily working to help house elves, and then all of a sudden her boss decides he needs her in this other department, Vampire Support Services. It's tropey. The title is tropey. But it's it's inspired by a real canon concept of werewolf support services. That's a real thing in canon. And so it's just like this other sub-department, but for vampires specifically. And she's surprised to discover Draco Malfoy has recently become a vampire. And from there, she's forced to represent him and work with him through his transition into vampirhood, if you will. So it's just like kind of this interesting dynamic. Um, it almost feels like a doctor-patient or attorney-client kind of a relationship between the, the two of them as they go through all of these different sessions, like talking about how it feels to become a vampire and like maybe address some of his blood purist thoughts like on being a vampire 
I think Draco has to challenge himself a lot. And I think Hermione's like the right person to have to do that because of their history and their tension. Yes, this fic is riddled with tension, but it wasn't the frustrating kind of tension. It was like, wow, this is so interesting and compelling as far as the tension goes, because just knowing from canon what their prior relationship was like in school, right? I can absolutely see how this is exactly how Draco would react to Hermione suddenly becoming his caseworker as he's going through one of the most difficult transitions in his entire life, you know? So you just, like, throw that on top of the pile of shit that he's dealing with and he's just not having it, you know? Okay, so I have a question for you about the vampire thing. Because I just said, I don't read a whole lot of vampire fic in general, so I'm very unfamiliar on how this trope normally goes. Not necessarily specific to Harry Potter, but just in general, as far as a fic trope, the elements that you included in your story, as far as the vampirism goes, are those pretty typical elements that are included in vampire stories in general? Or is this stuff more specific to Harry Potter? Were you making it up as you went along? I'm just kind of curious about that part. So I think an advantage I have while writing this fic is I don't read vampire AUs either. (laughs) So I just wanted something really tropey and fun. And I'm like, vampire Draco. Yeah. Stamp the seal of trope on that. And so I, I was able to like get into some more creative things. But you'll see a lot of these kinds of tropes, not necessarily just in like vampire AUs. You'll also see this in like Vila AUs, which is a pretty common trope in Germany. And I think maybe also in Dreary and um, maybe Tamari. I've seen it in a few different places, but you'll see Vila Draco as a pretty common concept. Vampire Draco, obviously, as well. But I've just, I've not read a lot of vampire AUs. Maybe part of one. It's just not something I dive into a whole lot. So it's given me a lot of room to like be creative. And I've, I've really thought of it more from Hermione's side as the bureaucrat, right? which I think has has given it more of a unique spin. It's not really diving quite as much into like the lore of vampirism as it is just like their experience within the law of the UK. Yes, that's one of the things that I found so fascinating about it, because I don't know if this is how it goes in most vampire AUs, but in your story, the vampires are a marginalized group in UK society, you know? So here comes Draco Malfoy, who's always been in the privileged class. I don't think he's ever been in a marginalized group before. No. And all of a sudden, you know, like he's thrust into this marginalized group for the first time. And what does that mean, right? What does that mean for him? And it was just fascinating the way that you did tie in the government bureaucracy to the issue because here's Hermione. And it's important to note, too, that Hermione has not been in this position for very long. She was in a different department when the story starts out. So she's sort of just, you know, her boss is an asshole and her boss just kind of throws her into the department that handles vampires and she doesn't know anything about it either. So she's learning on the job as she goes. And it's 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 sort of heartbreaking, actually, to go along with her as she starts researching the issue and realizing what this group of people go through every day and realizing just how oppressive the system is that's been set up 
in the UK to deal with these groups and things. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Yeah, especially from her point of view, which is also interesting just because had it been anyone else other than Hermione in this position, the story would go in such a different direction. But she's so determined at everything that she does that she just, I don't know, she has this energy about her when she's put into this position at the bureaucracy. You know, she recognizes all of these shortcomings and these pitfalls, and she seems so determined to do something about it, even though the odds are enormously against her. And I just love that about this story because it's her. The story has that quality to it. And I love that. Yeah, thank you. Like, So an interesting thing that my my beta mentioned as we were talking about it, and she caught the allegory like she she knew the assignment, right? It's all an allegory for the way that we treat felons in the American prison system. And you can kind of get that as you read it a little bit. But yeah, it's just very inspired by that concept as a whole. Yes, I saw that so strongly. So it's just very interesting that you have this dichotomy of the old established status quo, you know, the old guard institutional status quo of those people in power, you know, versus necessary progress that needs to be made for marginalized groups and people who are disadvantaged for whatever reason. There seems to be so many elements in here talking about concepts like ignorance and prejudice, definitely systemic oppression. Oppression rooted in fear. It seems like people have really deep-rooted ideas about vampires that are not necessarily rooted in truth. You know, it's a lot of, I don't know, a lot of fear and a lot of myth surrounding the issue. And people just get really scared. And it's that fear that I feel like is holding a lot of people back here from making that necessary progress. So the other thing I thought was really interesting, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. Because, you know, you mentioned a little bit about Draco's struggle, right? All of a sudden being a vampire and having to struggle against his own pure blood beliefs that he was raised with and that he's had all his life. And he definitely struggles with those same prejudices against vampires. And now he is one. And that is an incredibly difficult thing to deal with. So he definitely seems to have this like self-loathing thing going on. But there are so many parts in the story so far. This is, of course, a work in progress. So I say so far because um, we're up to, what, chapter nine, I think. And there are parts in the story where Hermione calls him out on not taking care of himself because she tells him, you know, the first six months after you first become a vampire are the hardest. It's a huge adjustment. There's a lot of changes that you have to make in your life. And um, there are certain things that you have to do to take care of yourself and make sure that you're not a danger to society, you know? And it seems at first that Draco really, what's the word I would use? He struggles against that and he sort of fights against it. He does just enough to stay in compliance with government regulation, but there are other things that he doesn't do. Like she calls him out one time because he's not taking as many blood potions as he should be. And she's like, you're not taking care of yourself. You look awful. What's going on? And there was a point when I was reading that chapter that it occurred to me, because I think in that chapter, he makes reference to past mistakes in his life. And I felt like he was probably referring to his past activities as a Death Eater, 
that was a big mistake. I think he can acknowledge that at this point in his life. It made me wonder if there's a part of Draco that didn't want to take care of himself at this point with the vampire issue because he still feels tremendously guilty about those past mistakes as a Death Eater. Like, is there a part of him, do you think, that feels like he does need to punish himself somehow or he still feels tremendously responsible for the people that he did hurt in the past? I just felt like there was something of that nature going on a little bit. So there's like kind of a combination of things going on, right? So he's dealing with this whole like having to face his past self while also going through this like very difficult transition that again is making him really have to face his demons in a very jarring and permanent way. There's nothing more permanent than a turtle vampirism because that's what it is, (laughs) right? Um, And he's also being interviewed by the exact kind of person that he would have been prejudiced against. And he has this like very tumultuous history with her, right? So he has to face this all in a, a really difficult way. Everything's kind of piling on at once. And also like, I kind of come at this from being a chronically ill person. We have a really hard time facing our reality when we start to understand like what's going on with us. And a lot of people that have chronic illness or mental illness won't necessarily jump right into treatment with both feet. And that's kind of where he's at right now, is trying to um, tackle all these feelings about like his new reality and his old way of looking at life. And then also like having to deal with the fact that like, I'm a blood purist and how would I have treated myself back then? He also still kind of has those lingering beliefs, but kind of can't anymore right so i think he's just like he's overwhelmed my boy is overwhelmed (laughs) yeah he seemed overwhelmed because he's being forced to confront these things he can't avoid them you know they're happening to him (laughs) in the moment so he's being forced to confront these things and being forced to consider them and think about them especially when you consider that hermione is his caseworker and she's going to call him out right (laughs) He can't escape. He can't run from this. (laughs) It it was very, very interesting just to see at this point in the whip, he is, um, I think she uses the word combative at one point in her dialogue with Malfoy. She says, you're so combative. And he is. He's so combative. And doesn't want to cooperate at this point, which I kind of understand. Like, there's part of me that's just like, Malfoy, you're such an ass. But then if I was in his shoes... I'd be overwhelmed and probably combative, too, just because there's nothing he can do. He has no control. None. Yeah. And he has to face his past demons literally looking him right in the eye, yelling at him every week. Because that's what Hermione is, right? She's his past mistake of being a Death Eater, you know? She was kind of like his first victim in school with the way that he started treating, quote unquote, mudbloods. So it's it's very interesting to um, see their dynamic and how that looks with her being on his case. Yes, yes. It's very interesting dynamic. I wanted to ask you about something else. Yeah. <laughs> so it was very interesting also observing Hermione, right, through this whole thing. Most of this, well, no, I would say all of it so far, is from Hermione's point of view. Yeah. And I was very intrigued by... Some of the things I observed in Hermione, (laughs) 
Most of the information that I have about who Hermione is comes from canon, you know, reading the Harry Potter books and seeing her also in the Harry Potter movies and stuff. And she's very uh, practical and responsible and detail oriented. And she's got that can do attitude. You know what I mean? Like she just seems really with it in her life. She's got her shit together. Right. And yet I, f- <laughs> I felt like in a way. There are parts of herself that she's not being honest about, if that makes sense. There were so many times when she lied to Harry about her real feelings about certain subjects in this fic, which I was so intrigued about, so intrigued. Instead of just coming out and being like, this is actually how I really feel or this is what I really think. She like blatantly admits in her internal dialogue that she's lying, you know, and I was like, Hermione. What? Because, <laughs> like, I just, I guess I just always assumed that she would be like a straight shooter and just like not lie about stuff like that. But I don't know. Is that avoidance? Like, she just doesn't want to face like certain feelings or certain thoughts that she has? Or does she just think that she should be feeling a certain way and is not and feels guilty about that? Like, I was just wondering what that was all about because that was so intriguing to me. Yeah, it's a combination of things. If Hermione Granger is anything, she is holier than thou. And um, in any situation where she feels like maybe she doesn't have the moral high ground, or maybe someone won't understand her moral high ground, that's where maybe like the dishonesty comes out. And I mean, we have some canon examples of her being dishonest. She does it, especially in Order of the Phoenix to do a lot of trickstering with Umbridge. We also have some evidence that Hermione can be a little underhanded. There's a little Slytherin in that girl. She put Rita in the jar. She put Rita in the jar. We're just <laughs> going to put that. <laughs> so like, and also in Order of the Phoenix, we have the, I think it was Sneak that came across the face when she broke the, um, the contractual obligation to be part of Dumbledore's army. So yeah, Hermione has like a little bit of a dark side and sometimes she'll admit when she's doing it. But if she feels like she's being judged, Hermione always wants to seem like she's better than you. That's part of her whole thing. And I get it because I'm right there with her. I always want to have the like social justice feeling, but like sometimes it doesn't necessarily align with my internal dialogue. So like, yeah, sometimes it, it just kind of comes out in a lie for her. Okay, that makes so much sense. Yeah, it was like, I don't want to use the term shady pragmatism, but because it's not really that shady. But it was just interesting to have her be like, yeah, this is totally a lie. I'm telling Harry right now. Like, you I mean, know, she whatever. doesn't think he'll understand it. I mean, we can even think about like her relationship with Ron. A lot of it is just like, denial sometimes when she does things like that because i mean we have examples of her throughout canon like straight up lying about like her feelings for ron or like he can go do whatever he wants with whomever it doesn't bother me like yeah she definitely has moments like that see and that's what i felt like i was observing in her interactions with malfoy as well i felt like there was some sort of dishonest denial there where she couldn't even really verbalize it in internal dialogue as well. Like you kind of have to read between the lines here in the context of the story 
there are so many times when she does things for Draco and people will call her out on it, right? And be like, why did you do that? Like, that was against the rules or that's weird. And she'll just make up some excuse as to why she did it and why it was necessary. But I felt like there was more to the story than that. And the reason that I believe that is because, you know, the part in the last chapter you have posted up, I think it's chapter nine, where she drops that pen in the session with Malfoy. And I felt like when they have that moment, you know, the first kiss moment, I was like, damn, this kind of came out of nowhere a little bit for me. But then I thought, no, it didn't. No, it didn't. Because she was kind of like in denial that whole time as to, and maybe I'm reading into it, but it felt like once we reached that moment of that first kiss, I could look back at all of the stuff that she did in the past for Malfoy and be like, she was like not being truthful about the reasons why she was doing all of those things and treating him special and different. Yes. And maybe she didn't even know why, right? Maybe she wasn't even able to be honest with herself about that. I don't know. It was just interesting. You're spot on. So she's like really struggling with, because she can't make sense of her feelings and Hermione likes to be able to make sense of things. That's kind of how she works. She has to be able to like, really understand and verbalize like everything that she's experiencing and when she can't she gets very flustered we see that with her relationship with ron right she gets extremely flustered because she can't make sense of everything that's going on and why it's working out the way that it is when he's like going out with lavender and all these things right so hermione like has a history of understanding her feelings to a degree but they're so messy and she doesn't know what to do with them and for her in this situation, because of some of the tags that I'm sure we'll talk about here in a minute, she's experiencing some things that are maybe unprecedented for her. Now, when you say tags, are you referring to the soulmate tag? I sure am. Oh, good, because I wanted to talk about that next. So obviously, like in fan fiction, just in general, right? Soulmate AU trope is this huge thing. <laughs> like so many people write about it because it's this really interesting tropey genre that you can do a lot with. So I was hoping that you could talk to us a little bit about that soulmate AU trope because this is tagged that way. So there's that soulmate element to it, which you kind of weave into the vampire lore in this world, which is, oh my God, beautiful and heartbreaking and just so intriguing. I'm wondering what are some of the elements you find most interesting about the soulmate trope? Because yeah, it's a really interesting genre, I think. Yeah. So I'm actually not usually big into the soulmate AU trope. I picked two tropes I don't read much of, vampires and soulmate AUs. I've read plenty of good soulmate AUs, but it's not something I'd like go tag surfing for, really. However, in this context, I felt like it made a lot of sense. I really like when people take it to a very extreme AU where it's a little dystopian and the whole world has been built around like the concept of soulmates, but bloodlust is not that. Bloodlust is more about the concept of vampires specifically having soulmates. This isn't like everybody gets a soulmate and you know exactly who it is. And if you don't, you're like the odd one out. People that have vampire soulmates are kind of the odd ones out, but like nobody really understands this concept unless you really like get into vampire lore and like start to study it. I think not so dissimilarly from the fact that like a lot of people don't understand the ins and outs of other cultures or other species if they haven't like went out of their way to study it. So 
yeah, it's it's kind of like a, a different concept, but uh, it's still a soulmate AU. Yeah. Well, and I just thought that was so creative that you did weave it in to the vampire lore because you're right. It's not like everybody in the Harry Potter universe in your story has the soulmate thing going on for them, but it's very specific to the vampire community. And so with that tag being in there in your story, we haven't reached that point yet in your whip, but you can kind of see where this is going, right? Because um, she has been leading up to this point, sort of asking Malfoy to start considering the idea of finding a mate because there are some definite advantages for vampires when they have a mate. Apparently, they can feed off of each other when they need to, and it's a much better feeding experience. Like, uh, I think you describe like uh, healing properties in the blood. Yeah, it's like medicinal. Yeah, it's a medicinal quality, which would just like really boost your quality of life as a vampire if you had that. Um, So, yeah, it's super fascinating. So we shall see what happens, but I think we can perhaps uh, (laughs) guess where this might be going here with (laughs) Malfoy and Hermione. Yeah, Yeah, so that'll be really cool. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your writing process because I'm always so fascinated about how people put stories together. All writers are different in the way that they approach these different projects. And I just love hearing the different ways that people do that. So I was wondering, what are the top ways that you utilize to come up with story ideas? And then what does your general writing process look like? Yeah, so um, they're often out of thin air, but sometimes they're inspired by like TV or true crime or whatever. Sometimes I'll think of a ship and then I'll think of scenarios that that would be very interesting to see them together in. Like I have a little back end whip I'm poking at that won't come out for a long time, but it's like Theodore Knott and Ginny Weasley, because I think it would be so interesting to put them together in like a Voldemort wins AU. Yes. Where like pure bloods are are pretty much asked to be like married in like a marriage law type situation. So sometimes it's like very based on the ship. Sometimes I'll think of a situation and then I'll think, okay, these two characters would be very interesting in that dynamic. Sometimes it's based off a version of a character I'd like to see like mob boss Tom or potions addict Draco or vampire Rita Skeeter is one of my favorites. I just like toying with like concepts and characters for bloodless specifically. Like I said earlier, I was looking for something tropey, easy to write. People would enjoy it, but it just keep my writing muscles sharp. So that's where vampire kind of came out of because it's like ultimate trope, right? And just for like actually writing, I've learned pantsing gets me nowhere fast. So I usually outline all my chapters in one sitting and make small changes as I needed, like, while I write. It helps me avoid getting stuck in, like, subplot rabbit holes or or running into, like, plot continuity issues. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. I am endlessly fascinated by the differences there because I've met a lot of pantsers and I've met a lot of plotters and planners and like it's always so wonderful to me like look at the different ways that we can approach artistic endeavors and you know one size fits all does not apply right (laughs) to art and writing and it's just beautiful I am more with you right like I need the plan and I need to plot things out I cannot pants things or they never get done you know (laughs) yeah I feel that (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. But then I've, you know, I've talked to so many writers who are pantsers and they write these beautiful fan fictions. And I'm just like, how, how does your mind work that you can do that without a plan? But they do. And it makes perfect sense for the way that their brain works and their process. And it's just, oh, I'll never get tired of it. It's more so power to them. More power right? to them. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, I just think it's beautiful, the different ways that people approach these things. Um, so I know that this fic, of course, I've said it before, it's a work in progress and all of that. But so far, I'm wondering what's been the most challenging part of writing this fic. And then how did you go about solving that particular challenge? Yeah. So, I mean, the whole point of this one was to write something easy and low stress because I had like this other thing I'm rewriting that's it's a very, very technical fic with a lot of like small parts that it it just it needs very light touches everywhere. Right. So it was like really stressful and finding this whip just to work on was kind of the break that I needed. But with that said, you know, everything has its challenges, even if it's meant to be easy. So I think that it was probably just be editing. I put a ton of energy into editing. So that's probably the most challenging part. I, I like to put out a finished product. I don't really like do like one or two drafts and then I'm done. I, I start with a skeleton draft, which basically says nothing. And then I work through it. I'll do five to a hundred passes. It just depends like on the the other whip I was talking about. I, I literally have chapters I've passed over a hundred times. So I'm I'm really like particular about the way that my syntax is is written. Do you enjoy the editing process? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's a necessary evil, yes. <laughs> have you been able to pinpoint why you enjoy editing in some instances and then in others it's just a nightmare? Have you been able to kind of syntax is a demon. So sometimes when things like flow really nicely and you have like so something I really focus heavily on is realistic dialogue. I don't like characters to feel like they're coming out and just like monologuing at you if it doesn't make sense. I'll have a lot of like little uh, things that I change about dialogue to make it sound like a real conversation. And um, I'm autistic, which I think has been like one of my strong points here because I mirror so heavily. And I'm, I'm very like, I guess I pay attention to the way that people interact in a way that maybe some people wouldn't. And I think that's that's really been my strong point because I can just emulate that pretty easily because that's what I have to do in my everyday life. But it does take a lot of work to get there. And sometimes it's like you're just trying to get out a certain piece of information, but they have to have all this like back and forth. And you're trying to find just the right formula and also make it so as you're reading, it sounds nice in your head as you're going because like if you don't have the right like variety of sentence structures or if you use like words that repeat it's just not going to sound nice so I think it's just working with syntax and making sure that you're getting the message across without coming across as like info dumpy so so it really is like formulaic I've been writing for 20 oh god 26 years I feel so old now <laughs> I've been writing for 26 years right so it's taken a lot of work to like get where I am now but I feel like I have a pretty good sense of where to put things. It just takes a lot of extra work to get there. It's like brushstrokes, right? When you think of an artist like painting a canvas, they have to start with these like base colors first that maybe don't make any sense, but they do in the long run and you have to keep layering. And that's kind of what the editing process is like. 
I like seeing the end result. I like when I get to the end, I'm like, wow, this actually flows really great. I love this. But it can be very frustrating when you feel like you should be getting that flow and you're just not. So there's, you know, it's there's wins and there's losses. <laughs> there is. There is wins and losses. But I love what you said about the end result being worth it when you can finally make that last pass right through the writing and be like, ah, this is it. Got it. You know? Yeah. It's <laughs> awesome. That's so awesome. Awesome. Thank you. We are coming up to the end here. I was wondering if you had any other fan fiction writers that you wanted to shout out on the podcast. Oh, God. We'll be here all day if I shout out everyone. So let me keep it <laughs> to like a handful. Sure. Firstly, I'd like to shout out Lunatic Pandora, uh, aka Jazz Disaster, who runs the HP Fanfic Writers Guild on Discord. Their Remus voice is incredible. They have some really creative AUs. And some fun Wolf Star and Remadora dynamics, if that's your thing. High key recommend anything they write. Blue Sunday Cake, who has done a lot of different pairings, both in HP Phantom and otherwise, especially Slash. Master of Angst comes up with some incredibly original ideas. Love everything he does. But I really recommend his Snary, Dreary, Into Mary. That was a lot of rhyming. Truly Chef's Kiss, though. In My Own Little Corner, who writes really interesting versions of Snape. I can't say enough good things about her Snape. Fabulous original character writer, too. Makes love interest OCs that you see, or that you actually like even more than Severus sometimes. Um, it's really impressive. All right, my last two. Sorry, I'm on a little tangent here. Someone's been here, longtime family friend of mine, who uh, has such a love for Ron, and it shows in her work. You get these, like, comedic, romantic, embarrassing, sad, angry moments that really brings to life, like, Ron's personality in a way that maybe you never thought of before and kind of gets into his internal dialogue. So like, I think that's really, I think there's a lot of Ron hate out there. So I got a boost by Ron writers. I can't encourage anyone enough to give her stuff a try. I, I love me some Ron. And last but not least, Venomous Barbie, who aligns more with my own brand as she focuses a lot on horror, Tamini, Ginny and Tom, Femslash, Sumdermine. She's a queen of creative dark and gray AUs and she can build these like palpably dark psychological horrors that really bring you to the center of like some really unusual stories you don't expect at all like her content is the furthest thing from derivative i can think of in the fan fiction space she's a big nope on trope but it makes for some really like captivating storytelling i i really can't recommend her work enough sorry for my tangent there but that's just a small sample of all the people making this fandom a, a brighter place i'm very grateful for all of them Absolutely. No, thank you for all of those. We are going to have Barbie on the show later on this year. Oh, very cool. Yes. So y'all will get to hear from Barbie as well. I am looking forward to that. Absolutely. Thank you so much for those. We'll make sure to get them on the show notes, links to everybody. So we can check those out. Lady Voldy, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your day to join us and talk to us today about fan fiction. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Check out her stories on AO3 and give her some love. You can find the Fanfic Maverick online at fanficmaverickpodcast.com, on Tumblr at fanficmaverickpodcast, on Instagram and Twitter at fanficmaverick, and I can always be reached at fanficmaverick at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, and I will see you next episode. In the meantime, keep on rolling.